Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Diaro. Thank you, Darlene. For our guest today, please welcome Rick McPartland. Rick is the president of The Revenue Game, LLC, a consulting firm built on revenue science dedicated to fundamentally changing the way to generate sales and revenue. Rick helps develop and deploy revenue strategies predictably, generating more sales and profitable revenue at less cost through certifying individuals and organizations through revenue science and providing CRO, Chief Revenue Officer, services. For more information, feel free to visit www.therevenuegame.com. That's www.therevenuegame.com. Hello, Rick. We're excited and honored to have you on the Modern Architect Show today. Well, Tom, I am thrilled to be here. Uh, it's a, a great opportunity. I, I think I've shared with you personally. I'm an evangelist on the subject, so I, I thank you for letting me have a platform to speak. Oh, I love that you're an evangelist on this. Rick, can you share with us some um, early inspirations? if you will, of how you came about revenue, uh, so the revenue science, even if it goes back to something that may you may have experienced in childhood that may be relevant to what it is uh, that you do today and now. You, you know, Tom, you have to be question, uh, careful when you ask a question of an evangelist. <laughs> you, you open the door for a very big answer. Oh, but, you uh, got it. it. It is exactly what you said. Uh, I grew up in the auto industry. And when I say grew up, my family started in the auto industry in 1912. And for 95 years, we received income from General Motors until they ceased dividends and went bankrupt. And during that period of time, I watched them go from, um, you know, a very poorly run company when they were a monopoly and in effect after World War II, the North American auto industry was the only place in the world that could build cars. Yeah. So they had a almost a 40-year run as a monopoly. And they got very, very sloppy and very bad. Uh, and so I, I sat there, and I, then I watched them try and fix it after the Japanese came. Mm-hmm. And what I realized was the Japanese knew how to manage a supply chain of uh, thousands and thousands of uh, suppliers all over the world tens and hundreds of thousands of employees to produce almost perfect cars every time. And when that came up in my head, I said, well, if they can do that with a car, why can't I manage a sales organization and a marketing team and a corporate strategy to create revenue for a hundred person company? Oh, how, and when was that? Can you approximate when, uh, you know, when that was 10, <laughs> 15, 20, 30, you know? I can tell you when the brainstorm hit me. Okay, I love it. I was working, I was working for McDonnell Douglas, and I realized that every time I sold something, I had to stop the selling process and spend the next seven weeks making sure the contract was booked correctly, it was going to be scheduled for production, the production was going to run when it was supposed to, Somebody reached out to the client and got the client trained. One of the engineers went out to the client site and got the client site ready. If I didn't do those things, I was sure they weren't going to get done. 
Wow. How did you know that you had, weren't there processes in place that would help you facilitate that as opposed to kind of you not being able to interface with the prospective or actual client? The, you, one would think that was the case. And when you get into, and it, I used to say it was big organizations, but even in small organizations, people get siloed really fast. Okay. Yeah, true. And if, if I'm trained as a, a marketing professional, I know how to market. So if you give me a budget and you tell me to go create a brand, I go do that. Mm-hmm. And if I'm a sales professional or a product development professional, I do the same thing. You tell me, you give me a budget, and you send me loose. But the odds that those three or four or five parts of the organization are all going the same way mm-hmm. with the same metrics approaches zero really fast. Oh, approaches so, zero real fast. Oh, my. Wow. So, the, the, you know, for years I used to speak and talk about alignment. Mm-hmm. And the, the concept about alignment, everybody said, yeah, 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 we got to do it. Nobody did it. And so I thought, well, why don't they do it? And then I, I finally realized in the revenue space, they have nothing to align to or with. If I'm building a, if I'm an engineer, okay. alignments, the specifications yes. and the outcome product, or if I'm an architect, it's the, the building or the bridge or whatever. It is. You know, there's at least a, a focus mm-hmm. and I can focus all my people on that one thing. But if we just say revenue generation, marketing says it's brand. Sales says it's leads or closing deals. Product development says, well, it's the product the customer really wants. And none of them are even speaking the same language. Yeah. How do you, did you come about the de- definition of it? You know, in, in uh, studying your website and some of the materials that you have before our, uh, our uh, conversation today, uh, I love the, I'm not sure if I have this correct, but how, how do you define the, uh, the operation definition of sales? <laughs> well, what, interesting, I've asked 10,000 CEOs, uh, what is their operational definition of selling? And I'm still waiting for my first answer. <laughs> Are you real? 10th, over 10th? Yeah. You're still waiting? <laughs> I'm st- because it's interesting, Jeez. you know, we all, everybody says, I want to improve things. I want to make things better. And we've all learned going through, uh, you know, bachelors, MBAs, whatever it is we've done, that you can't measure something you can't define and you can't fix something you can't measure. Oh. And so asking the question, what's your operational definition of selling, you know, really leads to the ability to manage the selling organization and set both operational financial metrics. So if you don't know what it is, you you can't measure for it. And the other problem is you can't hire for it. Yeah. How did you so oh, carry on, please? I'm a, co- is... I'm a cost accountant by undergraduate degree. Okay. And so the cost accountant in me said, and I've asked these 10,000 CEOs, if you have a salesperson and at the end of two years, they haven't ever made quota, what's likely to happen next? Yeah, usually they're like, what's what do you think the answer is? But then I would say I would think they would be let go. That's kind yeah, of absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, ten thousand people have told us if people don't sell, they don't get contracts, and they don't bring in revenue, I'm going to let them go. Yeah. So the cost accountant in me says, then what your real definition of selling is? They have to move deals forward. Say that again. Move. Uh, deals forward and deals is the operative word because we somehow got confused in the last century that prospecting and suspecting and networking were all part of sales true well there's there's no deal there true okay that deal wow so that took you a number of years to reach such a simple and clean definition it sounds like is that is that accurate it, it absolutely did it took years it's to, it's to move deals forward what if you do like a um uh i don't know which philosopher or maybe a number of people have said the equivalent of kind of begin with the end in mind um mm-hmm. approach to the move deals forward because that's what ultimately you're looking to do is to get the deal and who's going to help facilitate that 
how much clearer is it to those 10,000, if you've ever gone back to a couple of them, to say, you know, really, ultimately, this is kind of what you're looking to do? And how have they agreed or disagreed, if they've even disagreed? Well, you know, you, you just said something in there that's extremely important. It's that, that end game piece. Because one of the differences in in the, the 21st century, and I'm not sure it's different except where we care about it now and we didn't care about it before. And that is that um, the people who actually do, we use the term delivery. You know, and you can say they're the, the manufacturing arm or they're the, the people are building the building or, you know, they're the ones actually creating what the customer actually receives and finds value in and pays for. Mm -hmm. There is much a part of the revenue generation team as the marketing or the sales or the customer service or the product development. Because when it's all said and done, value is determined by that end game piece. And not only is it determined, but it's recognized as a, as a cost accountant. I know I don't get to recognize my revenue until I've delivered to the customer and the customer's accepted it. Yes. So if I'm really in the business of, of growing profitable revenue and I am not making the delivery component as integral to the revenue generation of sales and marketing, shame on me. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, how did you come to, about to learn how to um, trust this system or trust your sales forecasts? Oh, you just did another magic word. Um, if you're from, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever been a VP of sales and somebody says, go forecast for me. Yeah. You know, if you look at 90 some percent of the forecasts, they're this almost um, magical formula that basically says if there's 100,000 people out there that might buy this, okay. you know, we're going to forecast 2% of the 100,000. Now, if those 100,000, we've gotten 50,000 to go to our website. Now we're going to forecast 4% uh, of those. And you have this crazy formula that's just based on kind of math of the population as a percentage. And, you know, if we've given them, uh, and many times when I say given them proposals, uh, the market will sometimes just raise its hand and say, hey, send me a proposal. Now, often for the market, what they're saying is, I want you to educate me on what it might take me to go build this or go do this. They aren't planning to buy anything. There's no mm -hmm. deal there at all. Mm -hmm. Yet we're forecasting based on the market's request for information, more an RFI scenario. Yeah, out, out of that, and, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Rick, please. No, no, go ahead. Uh, I was going, the 10,000 CEOs, um, I'm going back to that with what you, with you, what you just said on that old forecast formula. And if you'd say I'm zero of them, recognize it. How, if you understand revenue science, this is my my um, mm -hmm. limited understanding of it, that you really are ahead of your competitors just by being aware, if not putting in practice some of its principles. Is that correct? Or am I reaching? Oh, yes, 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 yes. No, you're... One of the, the key things, you know, again, I warned you, I'm a recovering cost accountant. <laughs> yeah. One of the things, that if, if you study Six Sigma or Lean, one of the things that you will realize is a company that's not practicing those things sometimes will improve their productivity two or 300%. So if you, if you translate that concept to revenue, it, it's a little different because the company that used to be able to produce 100 widgets uh, a day now they produce 300 widgets a day. So you can see the uptick. In, in revenue, it's often we measure a thing called the cost of the chaos to produce revenue. What's that called again? Cost of? The cost of the chaos to produce revenue. Chaos isn't like mayhem type chaos? Mayhem is maybe a better word. <laughs> uh, but yes, no, it's exactly what it is. Okay. And if... You go, if you go back to the, the little analogy I gave earlier that you got a marketing team and they're going off doing brand and sales is doing their thing and product development's doing theirs and customer service is doing theirs and delivery's doing theirs. And I'm, I'm the CEO. I'm funding all five of those groups. 
Okay. And none of those five are going the same direction. Not that they're not good people, not they're not working really hard, not they're not doing good really work. It's just not aligned. Okay. So if I were to, what I'm really doing is I'm funding five different directions at the same time, trying to get a goal that's unrelated to all five in truth. Oh, how do you reduce that cost of the sales and marketing <laughs> facet? <laughs> Let me, let me give you another example that's more concrete and it's easier to answer your question. Okay. One of the things that, you know, for years we were, uh, I think, the, the first people or almost the first people to, to study a question of, and it goes back to your, uh, what's the, the definition of selling? We used to ask, what's your cost of an hour of selling? Okay. Because if I, uh, if I have a machine in a factory, I measure the output of the machine per, per activity or per hour or per something. And then I try and improve it or improve the quality as a result of it or the speed and the quality. But when I talk about improving uh, sales, the first thing I should start with is what's a unit of selling cost me? Let's touch back on that when we return. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. You're invited to join Silicon Valley at Home for Affordable Housing Week 2018. May 11th through the 18th will be filled with seminars, workshops, and panel discussions designed to raise awareness, educate, and encourage people to engage in working together to make Santa Clara County a more affordable place to live for all. The week will conclude with a panel discussion and luncheon on Friday, May 18th at 11 a.m. in Sunnyvale. For more information and tickets to the luncheon, please visit siliconvalleyathome.org backslash events backslash AHW 2018. We're talking today with Rick McPartland, president of the Revenue Game, LLC, a consulting firm built on revenue science, dedicated to fundamentally changing the way to generate sales and revenue. For more information, feel free to visit www.therevenuegame.com. That's therevenuegame.com. Rick, before I rudely interrupted you, um, you were talking about the cost of chaos and um, yep. the, the, the facets to it. Yep, and we, were, we got started on the cost per sales hour because if we look at an organization, most of our CEOs today, they measure everything. You know, they measure uh, cost per square foot. They measure, you know, the cost per copy of a copy machine, cell phone usage. I mean, we measure everything. Yeah. But I have yet to find an organization that part of their, their metrics is what's the cost of an hour of selling? Yeah. How do you quantify and that? Yeah. Yeah. And yet they have hundreds. Or in some cases, we've done studies on organizations that have thousands of salespeople. And they don't know the answer to this question. And it started, and you, you, know, you and I talked a few minutes ago about the definition of selling, because if I'm going to measure how many hours they do it and what's the cost, I first have to know what it is. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we started with sales is moving a deal forward. So then the second question is, how many hours in a week do a particular sales team from a particular organization actually do that? Now, kind of an interesting sideline to this, side note to this is, if, when I would ask that question before the recession, mm -hmm. nobody seemed to know or care how many hours a week their people did it, which is really to say, if I'm in a bubble, the economy's great, I'm not gonna fix it because it ain't broken, I'm just gonna ignore it. <laughs> After the economy, when I, the, the blow up, when I would ask CEOs, how many hours in a week do your salespeople sell? They knew, and they knew it was less than three. Less than three? Oh. Even if their sales teams worked 50 or 60, it was rare they actually sold more than three. Wow, that's a significant difference. What, what was the reason for that, or reasons, if you even know? I'm ignorant about well, what Well, no, there's, yeah. no there's, there's lots of very specific reasons, and it varies by organization. I mean, we've done these studies for companies as huge as Johnson and Johnson and uh, the phone companies and, and people like that. And it, it, it varies a, a little bit when we did the studies on the phone companies back in the day, you know, 25 years ago, 
they were so political internally. They they had just divested from AT&T being the, the queen of the world to, you know, all these smaller ones. And so there was just a lot of chaos and confusion. And I'm trying to figure out who I work for. And, you know, there was a lot of that. But part of it's travel. Okay. Part of it's I have to. One of the salespeople's biggest concerns is I don't have a good client, prospective client to talk to. Hmm. So if I don't have a good prospective client to talk to, what do I have to do? I got to go find one. And so we really, you know, and it's the old thing. We want salespeople to make 20 cold calls a day or, you know, go bang on doors or go do those things. And just as a timeout for us, Tom, none of those things are sales job. Those are marketing's job. Yeah. It sounds heavy loaded prospecting or what did you call it? Suspecting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, suspecting, and that's another piece. We don't have definitions between the difference between a suspect, which is probably somebody out there in the market we've never talked to. They've never talked to us. We have no idea if they're a real prospect or not. But we don't even have language internally. And when you ask the forecasting question, if you're forecasting suspects, that's like grabbing the yellow pages and writing a number on the outside of the book, how much you're going to close. Yeah. Until you've gone through a, a conversation, a qualification, uh, something with these people, the idea that you can forecast revenue from them is ridiculous. Yeah. How do uh, CEOs that you do talk to or founders of companies, uh, how do they feel after they've just they've met with you and have a, an under at least an awareness of revenue, the revenue science and uh, revenue generation, yeah. what, what's typically their response or generally their response? Normally it's almost relief. I mean, you know, after the recession, relief. these people know, know that their salespeople only sell three hours. They don't know what to do about it though. So the fact that somebody else can walk in and talk about this and at least, you know, commiserate, if you will, that we both recognize the problem. And when you then put revenue science on the top of it, now there are absolute ways to deal with it. And they're not subjective ways, they're objective ways. And so they, they're they very relieved. Mm -hmm. Now, five minutes after relief, they kind of take a step back and say, wow, what you're really telling me is I have to do something different that I'm doing today. Oh. That's when they start to get concerned. Yeah, that concern me. I'm going to go back to something you talked about the cost of chaos. It's it kind of seems to go back into that because there there needs to be um correct me if I'm wrong, there needs to be kind of an internal change and in, um, emotionally and mentally with them to 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 commit to it. Is that correct or Absolutely. This okay. is one of the few things that cost next to nothing to do. And while I introduced the cost of case a few minutes ago, I want you to get a flavor for how um, extensive it is. And we've been doing these studies now since the 80s, so there's, I don't think there's any room for And no CEO I've ever talked to argues with these numbers. So if you're B2B, which your, your audience, the architectural world is B2B, the cost of the chaos to produce revenue is minimally 20% of the top line. 20, wow. Okay. In many cases, it approaches 40 or more. Yeek. And when we have this conversation with the CEOs and in seminars and so on and so forth, nobody argues with it. They know it's true. And so when, when we think about this and when the, the CEO has this, oh my gosh, somebody knows my sales force is only selling three times and has a way to help me fix it. And then they realize, oh my gosh, I got to go through those mental changes and, you know, things you were just talking about. That's mm -hmm. where the, the, the obstacle comes because what we're really saying is you have to, you know, I used to say we're going to do culture change. I kind of gave up on that. Nobody likes to change culture. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. You could, that just sounds yeah. like a whole, uh, yeah. Yeah. Way too big. Yeah. For but sure. What what they will do is they will change habits. Habits, excellent. Okay, okay, I'm with you on that because uh, you know there's discipline, and I just learned this. This is from a, uh, I have a a personal coach, and uh, what we um, we replaced disciplined with habits, and yeah. I find that a lot easier 
and more comfortable to make change by just re re-referencing that word i don't know if it works for in this case but i just thought it would be relevant somewhat oh no that's a that's a perfect fit and one uh, a really simple example of a habit that people can change that has uh, a far-reaching impact that until they change the habit they really can't imagine how big the impact is and that is doing everything they can to remove first person from most of their business communication. Whoa, that, that's so ingrained in all of us. <laughs> it is, and it's really hard. And, you know, the, the, it's hard to make the personal habit change. It's easy to metric it because you just get out a highlighter <laughs> and you just start highlighting all the first person. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I just, I just did one this morning in this, you know, and it's a really good client, really great company. And I'm, I'm looking at this, really a half a page cover letter that they send out every day. And in this half a page are like 25 first person. And this, is this from uh, the CEO or a, a Yeah. C I mean, I'm sure the CEO wrote it. I'm going to see him when <laughs> I leave you and I'm going to ask him because I just did this. Uh, but so you highlight that, the first that person. Is, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and it's, it's one of those things that once you do it and you give it to somebody and you've highlighted their first person, the next time they write a letter or an email or a, an overview or a, you know, a recommendation, their, their brain says, oh, Brick's going to look at this with a highlighter. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so they really adjust, they adjust it. But I can see because so much of change, again, going back to the personal coach, change happens within um, first before you uh -huh. can, you can, you can uh, share or contribute to that sort of change uh, relevant to the, the architects. Um, this is the line actually from Frank Lloyd Wright that uh, it really segues nice. I think into this and I, he said, pick your butt out of your chair thinking that a 40 hour week is going to do it. Yep. 40 at the machine, but 40 more out in the field, hustling and bending elbows with prospects and satisfied customers, egging them on to give you referrals. Frank Lloyd Wright. I don't know when when that was stated, but that's it was quoted that Frank. So he's he's talking about, at least from my perspective, a lot of the work that architects they really don't. There's not a sales force. Marketing is becoming more prevalent, I'd say, within the last five or ten years. But there's not an official sales force that actually goes out and meets with prospective clients and closes deal. Everything is really within that with with them, and a, a great percentage is not dealt is not on design, a great percentage is working with the administrative, uh, bureaucratic, uh, all the, all the, um, you know, just a lot of paperwork and processes as opposed to just design. So how, how could you see that helping with an architect or well, the revenue you know, that one quote we could do a week on. Really? I, I'm going to transition directly from the highlighter into your quote because okay. You know, when, when he says get out and get in the field and have dinner with customers and so on and so forth, part of what he's saying in our world, in the revenue science world, is switch your frame of reference to customer first. Uh, and, okay. you know, yeah. we see companies and uh, we see companies design their product services, their methodologies, all these stuff, these things from headquarters out. And candidly, the customer doesn't give a rip about what you created the headquarters. Very true. The customer only cares about, can you help them solve their problem? I see. That's all they care about. Yeah, I'm seeing it. So you, it's, and, oh, carry on, please, Rick. I'm just overly excited. <laughs> well, the only way you can know their problem is go out there and listen, listen, ask questions, listen, ask questions, listen. Because... Even when they tell you their problem, how often are we in a situation where somebody tells you something, you think you understood it, but they really meant something different. And particularly when you're a professional, an architect, an accountant, a lawyer, you have your own language. And if people happen to use your words, you think they know what they meant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they don't always. And so we need to design our our revenue plans from the customer back based on the problem the customer wants solved. 
Now, part of the reason that's so critical is fees are always, I assume fees are always an issue for all of us. Is that correct, correct. a fair statement? Correct. And the, the science tells us the fee the customer wants to pay has a mathematical relationship to the problem they want to have solved. As close as possible, if not as accurate well, as possible. Well, from, from their standpoint, it, it, that's their, their, their mind is there. I am never going to pay you more than the value of solving this problem. That's it. I'm not going to. Why would I? Yes, true. So if, if I don't understand your problem and I set a fee, I risk either charging you too much or too little. If I charge you too much, what are you going to do? You let leave. You're gone. Yeah, you're going to go someplace yeah. else. If I charge you too little, believe it or not, particularly, uh, you know, I, I'm sure some of your architects are doing very creative next generation kinds of work. And if, if you're familiar, there's a thing called the diffusion of innovation curve, which is a... Yes, yeah. It's great. Uh, yeah, simple bell curve. I mean, there's yeah. nothing complex about it, but the, the power of it is that the, there's 60 years of research that says on the left-hand side of the curve and that tiny, tiny, tiny little corner down there, innovators <laughs> live. And the, the next section of the curve are early adopters and then early mass market, and mass market and so on and so forth till you get to laggards at the other end. And so the, the fee is really about how much brain your customer is buying from you. I like that. If you're, sell if you're selling to innovators, they don't care how you do it. You can do it with white rats for all they care. <laughs> if you're doing something really cool, nobody's ever done it before, it solves their problem like, wow, they want to pay you 10% of the problem. So if you solve a $20 million problem, your fee better be $2 million because there's a combination of neuroscience and a bunch of other stuff that says if you charge them more than $2 million for a $20 million problem, their brain says, okay, we've never done this before. This is brand new. I can afford to pay $2 million and risk it that it goes bad and I give it up. But if you charge me 4 I can't risk 4 and it not work. Yeah. The second thing they say is if you charge me less than $2 million, Maybe your cost is four hundred thousand. You say, "Hey, man, we we can charge them eight eight fifty. We'll make a fortune." If you charge them less than two million, their first thing says, "Oh man, this is a this is a twenty million dollar problem. You don't understand it, or you wouldn't charge me eight hundred fifty thousand because that's too cheap." The second thing is, if they're paying you to solve a problem that's really new, really cool, really out there. They need you to be with them every step, and they want to pay you enough that when they need you and when they have a question and when they think the project's at risk, they're going to pick up the phone and they expect Tom to answer. Outstanding. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Music has been used for healing since ancient times. Healing Muses provides high-quality live music featuring the harp as part of innovative healing programs to support patient care in Bay Area hospitals, hospices, and convalescent centers. The organization relies on generous support from public and private sources, including individuals. If you'd like to help, you can visit www.healingmuses.org or email information at healingmuses.org. We're talking today with Rick McPartland president of The Revenue Game, a consulting firm built on revenue science dedicated to fundamentally changing the way to generate sales and revenue. For more information, feel free to visit www.therevenuegame.com. That's www.therevenuegame.com. Rick, value and coming from the buyer's perspective as opposed to first person, can you touch a little bit again on that? Sure. Maybe a, a simple example is if we go to big companies or professional teams, lawyers, CPAs, and I assume it's true with architects as well, we often spend a lot of time looking over our shoulder at our competitors. When we do our, our strategy for the year, we do a SWOT, and we're trying to figure out what our threats are from our competitors. We go do trade shows and we compare our booth to theirs. And <laughs> we have all this comparison between, you know, our, what we think is our competitor. But if you 
take a step back and you go out and have lunch with your most ideal customer, the truth is they don't really give a rip about your competitor. They don't really care, you know, who's got the bigger booth. They, they don't care about any of that. What they really want to know is can you make my world better? There's a phenomenal book called uh, Three Rules of it's – by, it's by two Deloitte partners. So if you just Google Three Rules in Deloitte, you'll, you'll get the book. It's okay. a bestseller. It's a, it's a research book, and it's the next generation to, if you're familiar with, and I'm sure you are, Tom Peters in Search of Excellence, and then sure. Jim Collins, Good to Great, and so on and so forth. This is the next generation book, and they started out saying, okay, we got to get a bigger sample. So their sample size was from the 60s to 2010, 25,000 companies. And their question was, is there such a thing as a great company, no matter what the economy, no matter what the competition, no matter what is going on in the world, is there such a thing as great company? Yeah, how do you define it? Well, they, their answer was pretty simple. You always make more money than anybody else in your, in your, your slot. You know, if you're a trucker, you're making more money than any other trucker. If you're a manufacturer, you're making more money than any other manufacturer. And that was their, their cut on it, which probably for most of us is pretty legitimate cut. And so they found there were 700 and some of them over this very long period of time, up economy, down economy, change technology, all those things. And so then they went into a deep dive on half of those 300 and some. And they said, we want to know what makes these people great. And so they did the same thing Peters and Collins did, which turns out wasn't correct, which is they asked the question, what do these companies do that's different? And with the 300 and some that were these super overperformers, what they found was they didn't do anything different. And as a matter of fact, they, you know, if you think about anything being innovation, customer intimacy, you know, product development, whatever those things were, they didn't do anything different than their competition. And as a matter of fact, often they didn't do it as well. Mm -hmm. So they took a step back and said, okay, excellence doesn't have to do with what they do specifically. And they asked a different question. They said, I wonder if they think different. And so what they found was it was all about the thinking. And so those three rules are three rules you, you asked the question, Tom, uh, half an hour ago about this mental approach, this, you know, what do you call it, discipline or habits or mm-hmm. whatever. It's, this, it's in my brain. It's not in my ability to go out in the factory and build parts. And so the three rules were very simple. When I deal with customers, it's always about making them better before I talk to them about cost. If I can't make them better, there's no sense us working together. Then internally, that's the external rule was it's always about better before cheaper. Yes. The internal rule. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm I just, I'm taking notes while we're talking, Rick. And so when I see that, I get, as I said, I get excited and I'm like, jump into it. Um, no, this is. Just, oh, that's, that's great. No, that's, it's beyond and, and fascinating. You, this is obviously very, very valuable. Um, please carry well, on. I interrupted the, you again, Rick. And the part about it that's cool is they want to study 25,000 com- companies to get to this. This isn't, somebody's observation, you know, and that was, I, I love Peter's book, but his, you know, he went out and looked at companies that were doing well today. And he said, you know, how is it you did well today? Well, many of those companies were in a bubble. And when you're in a bubble, you look like you're doing well today. And, you know, if you just count, did I make any money today? I did, but maybe I'm running a good company in a great environment. And so these guys went out and did a different thing. They said, I want to check you across all environments. And so the first one was always it's better before cheaper. The second rule was internal. How does my company think about itself? And that was always about revenue before cost. Now, I'll give you an example of what that means. I don't know if you've ever been to a corporate strategy where the first thing we do is we have the CFO stand up. And the CFO says, okay, Tom, your department's getting a 10% cut. Rick, yours is getting a 15% cut. Darlene here's getting a 12% cut, and now take your teams, go away for a day and a half, tell us how you're going to handle those cuts, and then come back, and we'll talk about growing revenue. And so two days later, you come back, and then they sit down and talk about how to grow revenue. That's putting costs before revenue. The alternative to that is what the books found these great companies did. They said, okay, guys, 
Next year, I want you to list all the things we can do to grow revenue. Then we're going to figure out which ones we can afford. Ah, uh, so you've—it sounds like you've aligned it correctly. Am I getting this in this into this interview? Yeah, you've aligned it yeah. pro- properly. Like this is this is the way we read it. You know, the Earth is no longer is not flat. Is it that exactly? Yeah, it's it. This stuff. You know, the the beauty of today is there's there's so much data that the hard part is it's you got to parse through it. But the good news is if we really want to know some answers, there's not a shortage of answers out there. We just got to go grab them. And, you know, to, to maybe anticipate your next question, revenue science is very much like medical science in the sense it isn't a single science. Like medical science is not just biology. It's not just biology and chemistry. It's not just, bi- you know, there's probably a hundred different sciences that if you go into a hospital, they're, they're put into work every single solitary day. The, the power of the doctor or the power of the medical professional is the diagnosis and then the triage and then the, the definition of the best way to apply all those sciences to create healthy people. Revenue science is exactly the same way. You know, there's neuroscience, there's, you know, there is a lot of, uh, believe it or not, biology. The decision-making process is biologically driven. And so revenue science is the same thing. There's 50 or 100 sciences that a, a professional who wants to be a chief revenue officer better become as familiar with as many of them as they can, but their, their power is when you diagnose and triage and apply. It's not just memorizing a couple of things and saying, oh, there's a diffusion of innovation curve, and now you know that you're perfect. You know, you're only perfect if you can apply it. Oh, I like that. You're only perfect if you can apply it. Ah. Rick, now with, with architecture and the uh, construction business constantly evolving, um, the expectations to generate uh, scalable, predictable revenue evolves as well, or does it? Oh, yeah. And I think the good news, if I'm most, believe it or not, most of my clients are in one way, shape, or form engineering clients. You know, architects would be perfect clients for us because two or three things. One, when we talked about the cost of the chaos to produce revenue, the amount of chaos is really the result of the complexity of the environment. Okay. So if I'm flipping hamburgers, my maximum cost of chaos might be 10% of my top line. But if I'm a, an architect who's building uh, um a manufacturing facility that has all kinds of uh, assembly lines inside it. It has material handling lines inside it. It has, you know, all kinds of complexity in it. There's six different key players that are involved with making the decision alone. And then I've got 15 partners on this deal that do the various part of the construction if I'm not the general. You know, the complexity in that is astounding. And managing that complexity in it, we use the term intentional way, is, you know, is key. And if you're not managing that many variables in an intentional way, you, you can't pretend it's going to be under control. Yeah. How many processes the, the or other, stages are there in or steps are, are in that? <laughs> um, or does it vary by industry or a specific respective space. I'm laughing because uh, we started the company in 1989. Our purpose was to help the biggest companies in the world launch new products. And to us, launching a new product meant getting it successfully into the market. You know, our clients were Siemens and Philips and Johnson Johnson and AT&T and, you know, those kinds of people. And you know, they know how to create a new product. I mean, they got Bell Labs, you know, I mean, come on, they know how to do this. But what they didn't know how to do was actually get people to give them money for this stuff. (laughs) And so, and we thought, to answer your specific question, we thought we were really smart because we came to them and said, guys, we can audit your launch process. And you can, today we know the launch process and a business process are the exact same things. You know, the same steps, the same uh, gates, the same quality controls are the same between launching an individual product for AT&T and launching a company or being an architecture firm. And we said, we got 60 points that we audit. 
if you fast forward 10 years later, because we did that work for a dozen years, that 60 became 378. Whoa. So if you really want to know, and I mean, if you're, if you're AT&T or Phillips or Siemens, you have to know, because I mean, you're, you're spending 250, half a billion dollars on a product. You can't not get it right. And each one of those, whatever you want to call it, checkpoints, gates, whatever, variables, we call them. Every one that is not aligned with all the others at least slows you down. Certain ones stop you. If you don't have this variable aligned, the process stops. Now, the, all 378 actually fit under a high-level category of six. And so 98% of the work we do today is focused on those six. And even that, people got, to, because you're creating a discipline for each one of those six. And the, the, the first one in that line, if it's not done correctly, then the second, it's like six machines in a factory. If the first machine doesn't create good parts, the second machine can't. And the second machine can't, third machine can't. These are all linked. Now, the good news for, for architecture, for uh, engineering, for science-based manufacturing is that today the market really is looking for an end-to-end approach to solving their problem. They aren't looking for the used car salesman. I mean, that scares them to death. What they really want is you, you know, it's a six step process. I'll do it real quick here. The first one is it's called investigate. There's somebody out there who has a problem. They're trying to figure out who might help them. Now, maybe they see you at a conference or maybe they hear a, a radio show, but more often than not, they go to Google and they start looking around and saying, who's doing the kind of stuff I'm interested in. Then the second thing they do is they found, oh, I found three of them. Now I'm going to dive deeper. And maybe they go to a seminar, maybe they sign up for a webinar, you know, maybe they start reading the blogs, they start doing some other things, and they're going, wow, sounds like these guys can do it, but the second thing they're doing parallel is they're trying to figure out if they trust you. Because there's another great book called Human Brand. Human Brand basically says the Internet has made everything transparent. And so when I'm trying to solve a problem, I'm looking at who might be able to help me, and I'm going to look into the transparency to see if I trust them. Can I believe them? Who's suing them? How many stars do they have? And they're going to go look at LinkedIn because they want to know if this is my project manager, where were they last? Where did they go to school? Oh, I know their brother. (laughs) And so this is happening before, whether it's the architectural firm, the manufacturing firm, whoever, before they even know that human or that company exists. And if we don't help them travel those first two steps, which is the first one's peer investigation, the second one is what we call early qualify. They're trying to figure out if they want to invest time and energy to speak with us. And then the third step is, that, okay, I'm willing to share with you who I am. And I'm willing to start into some kind of dialogue. I still don't want a nasty, aggressive salesman, but I'm willing to start a dialogue with you. And it could be an online dialogue. It could be at a conference. It could be I'll talk to you on the phone. And that's the point where you have the phone conversation where the next step kicks in, which is back to your early question about, you know, what what's really defined as selling. And this is that point where you as the architectural firm have to qualify that the problem that buyer wants to solve is one that you can solve for them, giving them great value, and you get paid in return for that value. And that needs to be very, very intentional. It needs to be systemic. It's not a, we're going to make it up as we go along kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And when that person says, wow, Tom, what you guys are doing, I think would solve my problem. Your next final qualification question to them is, okay, we have a process. If that's the problem you want to solve, and we titled a process, a joint statement of work, uh, call it whatever you want, but it says, if you really want that problem solved, here's what we need to do to know what that solution will look like, what it will cost, how long it will take, and if we want to do business together. 
Nice. So that's the your alignment. I'm, I'm going to go into a station break and we'll come right back. This is the Modern Architect, KZSU, 90.1 FM, Stanford. The California State Park Foundation is the only statewide independent nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting, enhancing, and advocating for California state parks. With ever-present budget cuts threatening our parks from the Oregon border to Oceanside, the foundation needs your support more than ever. There are many ways you can help. To learn more or to make a much-needed donation, go to calparks.org. That's calparks.org. We're talking today with Rick McPartland, president of The Revenue Game, a consulting firm built on revenue science dedicated to fundamentally changing the way to generate sales and revenue. For more information, you're welcome to visit www.therevenuegame.com. That's therevenuegame.com. Rick, you and I were discussing before we even come on the show, we're obviously at Stanford, wouldn't it be neat? I can imagine a time where everyone's in a social gathering and discussing what they majored in and what they what their work is, for those people to be able to say, "Hey, you know what? I majored in uh, revenue science. I got a bachelor of science in revenue science." Do you see a day that that happens within the next couple of years? I absolutely do, and one of the I, I'm a history freak and. <laughs> A few years ago, I started to ask myself that that question. And so I went back and I did some research. And in my career, there was, when I started, there were no CFOs, CEOs, CIOs, CMOs, COOs, or CROs. None. Wow. None. The first one was in 1963. And that was a CFO. There weren't even any CEOs then. CEOs didn't show up until the early 70s. <laughs> didn't show up. And then a CIO until 88. And then chief revenue officers until uh, 97. So when you think, when you ask the academic question, and I, I was a professor for a number of years, uh, when you ask the academic question, uh, when I started, even when I started in academe, only the only one that existed was a CFO. Yet today, there's no problem having a curriculum supporting CFOs or CIOs or COOs. You know, the curriculums are absolutely positively there. Now, there's this great learning we get from looking at those those parallel C-level situations. And the CFO is the easiest one to to think about because I think we all understand it pretty well. And three levels are really important because the chief revenue officer, like the CFO, their job is, first and foremost, I'm the only one who is looking across the whole organization. Because if I ask sales, I'm going to get a sales answer. I ask marketing, I'm going to market answer. If I ask product development, I'm going to get a product answer. The chief revenue officer, like the CFO, is answering the strategic direction question for the organization, not for a department or a silo. So that's the first part of their job. They need to be the objective, professionally based uh, resource that goes to the CEO and to the leadership team and says, here are the choices and options we have, and here's a process we can actually deploy that will take us down that path. The second thing they're responsible for, and one of the things we talked about the cost of the chaos to produce revenue, one of the metrics that I think is going to be a metric of the future is what we call the revenue resources required. So if you imagine today you're a hundred million dollar company, you've got a $10 million net and we would say measure the resources you've invested to get those two numbers and tell me what the ratio is. It's probably going to be 40, 45, 50% of the top line. So if next year, if it's a great economy, we grow to 120, our bottom line goes up to 20 or 25, we want to see the ratio get smaller. If last year our revenue resources required were 45%, as we remove the chaos, we actually produce more revenue with less cash. Oh, and so the two, two jobs of the CRO nobody else has are creating a cross-organizational strategy that can be aligned, and then to make sure that we're not overspending in our resources. And I could tell you some scary stories about overspending, but probably don't have time for those today. So the second thing is then the CRO 
gets to hold that next management level, which is VP sales, VP marketing, VP customer service, accountable for executing the deployable revenue strategy. And then the third level are salesmen, uh, you know, uh, uh, people out in the field actually doing marketing work and the people actually doing the product development. And that's the same kind of level in finance. You start out with CFO, controller, and then people doing APAR payroll. And in both cases is actually in finance, it's easy to see there's, that's how you stop embezzlement. But on the, the revenue side, if I don't have a, a CRO and I go to the head of marketing and say, what should I do? Their answer is, well, spend more on marketing. And if I go to sales, what should I do? Their answer is hire more salespeople. And both of those answers are almost as bad as embezzlement. Oh, Rick, this is this is outstanding. Now, Rick, what what uh, what would you share with the architects, and the engineers, and uh, you, know, you can put all business because you're offering a professional services, a professional service firm together. Is what can influence before we have to close out? What inf can change or shift their mindset to the value? of revenue science, revenue thinking, revenue generation? What kind of mindset or what habit, let's go with the habit, what habit or habit can they adopt so that they can shift that to experience, uh, you know, scalable and predictable yep. revenue? Yep, yep. Uh, one, there's a book out called Challenger Sales. So I, I'd read that book, but the habit I would change, and this is, you know, for all our, our manufacturing, engineering, uh, software development organizations, I, and I would assume it's equally as true for architects, is stand up for the fact that you know how to add value. And don't let people tell you that what you do is the same as everybody else. Because if it truly is the same as everybody else, you have a much bigger problem. I can't help you. But I've, I've never seen engineering and, you know, firms like that that don't have some really cool stuff they're doing that adds value to the customer, and yet they allow themselves to be uh, pushed around by procurement or people who don't even know what they're talking about, and they don't push back. And I don't mean push back in a mean way, sure. but I mean saying, look, I know how to do a building or a bridge or a, a factory, and here's considerations you haven't thought about. And when you make the conversation about value, that if you're building this factory, you know, one of the things that's critical is your long-term operation cost, which is heating and cooling and, you know, maintenance and all these things. We've designed this, so you're going to save 15% a year over those other designs you're looking at. Don't argue with me about $200,000 on the design fee. Yeah. Rick, it's been an honor, a real honor and pleasure having you as our guest today. Thank you. We hope you... Uh, I hope you consider visiting with us again in the very near future. I would love to, Tom. I've enjoyed it, and I, I hope it's it's been helpful. Yeah, it absolutely has. Terrific, terrific, really, really great uh, show today. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Rick McPartin. Rick is president of The Revenue Game, a consulting firm built on revenue science dedicated to fundamentally changing the way to generate sales and revenue. Rick helps develop and deploy revenue strategies, predictably generating more sales and profitable revenue at less cost through certifying individuals and organizations through revenue science and providing CRO, Chief Revenue Officer, services. For more information, feel free to visit www.therevenuegame.com. That's www.therevenuegame.com. Join us again next time. Welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect Radio Show and Podcast is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and is a production of KZC Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Darlene Franklin, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Caleb B. Smith. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Diaro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu.